Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Nathaniel Turner. Nathaniel is a published author, lawyer, accountant, TED speaker, and in his own words, a humanity propulsion engineer. We reached out to Nathaniel to discuss his views on what it takes to live a life of joy and purpose. Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. All right. So I want to start from the obvious question. You call yourself a humanity propulsion engineer. What is that? It's, it's real simple. You're a smart guy, so it's going to make a lot of sense to you. Um, I'll just take the three words, humanity, which we most people understand as a compassion. It could mean compassion. It also could mean the, the greater human species. Um, propulsion is to move forward. I'd say a little bit more than moving forward, but to move forward positively. So it could be up or it could be forward advancing. And engineering is tools, techniques, and strategies. And so when you put all those things together, humanity propulsion engineer is someone who cares deeply about humanity and wants to find ways to engineer us to move forward positively. That sounds like something that we definitely all want to happen. But what is the right approach to this? Should we be looking at each person individually? Should we be looking at all of humanity systematically and trying to create some conditions that make it easier? What is your approach? Well, this is a very excellent question, and I don't know that I have the answer for how everyone should do it. I would say uh, we have to all find, in some ways, our own individual ways to do that. But I think the greater question for us to ask is, do we understand our responsibility to something bigger than ourselves? And if we do understand our responsibility to something bigger than ourselves, such as the planet, for example, the UN, and I'm probably going to be all over the place with this question a little bit, but for example, the UN has 17 sustainable goals. Did they indicate that there are these seven things that threaten the existence of the other planet? Now, I have no ability to work on all 17 things, but I might be able to work on one, and you might be able to work on one, and we might know 15 other people who could work on the other 15. Um, if we do those things collectively, then we will improve the, 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 the face or state of humanity. But if we don't do those things, well, we're all going to pretty much perish together. I think the obvious retort that most people would have in their mind, or the objection that people would have in their mind, is the categorical imperative. I might do those things, but somebody else will not. He's just going to take a free ride. Is there a way to address it so that everybody is incentivized to actually do something to better humanity? Or is it everybody's personal sacrifice? Yeah, so I, I would say... If we do believe like this idea that the rising tide lifts all boats, then I can't be so much concerned about who participates or not. If, it, if all I was interested in was the survival of myself, I would do those things because I want to survive. So to not to do them because somebody else is not going to participate doesn't ring like the most intelligent thing one would do. Hey, the fire is, there's a house on fire and I could put the fire out but nobody else is going to help me put the fire out. So I'm just going to let us all burn. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I'm going to put the fire out and hope that me putting the fire out maybe inspire someone else that the next time they'll want to participate and step up. That is definitely a good option. I'm just trying to wrap my head around whether there is an even better option of saying when instead of walking the neighborhood trying to look for houses that are on fire, maybe I should develop a technology that makes houses less likely to catch fire, which Absolutely. is a systemic solution that doesn't require brave people walking around the neighborhood putting out fires right that is that is correct how so what you've just what you've just illuminated is that the biggest key is not about systems and structures the biggest key is about humans 
So that is what a human a humanity propulsion engineer would do, would be to encourage you to see the world through the lens of your humanity so that you would want to create uh, a home that would not um, they would not catch fire, and, uh, right? So that's what, what the better human would do. So then you say, well, how do you become that? And maybe you ask yourself when your time on this planet is up, who do you want to be? I'm curious about that distinction, though, because you say it's not about systems, but what I just described is a system for building better homes. And it just happens to incentivize humans to do certain things better, right? But, mm-hmm. but the system exists because a human created the system. See, to me, too often we talk about systems and structures as if they're these inanimate objects that just appear out of nowhere. The only system that I know of that's a natural system is the ecosystem and everything else is is man-made. So I I, I don't like to put the onus on a system because it pretends as if the humans are not responsible for the structures that exist. Our political systems, our economic systems are not natural systems. They're systems that humans have developed. So this, the system that seems to be to need the most correction is the system of humans. Would it make sense to view it as less of a binary dichotomy and more as a continuum? Some systems, they were obviously invented by humans, created by humans, but now they're taking a life of their own. And in fact, they're sort of feeding back into bad behavior in humans or incentivizing bad behavior. So you cannot then go ahead and fix human behavior without eliminating the bad incentives in the system. Well, if, if humans understood that the systems were causing bad behavior, perhaps humans would get rid of the system. Well, perhaps those humans that need to understand and get rid of it is us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Now, so the thing is, we happen to be working in the space where I'm the CEO of a company that tries to fix a particular broken system, right? Okay. The system of junk news and the incentives within the news ecosystem to deliver junk and clickbait and all these other things that make humans dumber, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cannot go and preach to every journalist, you must write better articles. They're already trying often, but then their employer rewrites the headline to be something dumber because the incentives in the system are to just generate clicks and views. And so that's why I keep pushing towards, well, we have to reform the actual system of incentives here. So let me go back to the origin of that species. So that origin of that species, when that when that child who then becomes the editor of the newspaper that creates uses clickbait, when that person was first created in that first five years or so when their brain was formed, when those first five to seven years, when their social structure was formed, their parents set them up to be the person that they are who later become the editor. So we're still talking about people and the development of people, oftentimes much earlier, way far earlier than they become employees and writers and those kind of things. So for me, I'm, I'm always going to say, I'm going to look at the people and not the systems. I hear you completely, but I do. I have a child. And if I want my child to be a great human, to not do what you just described, then I'm responsible for putting systems in place in my home so that my child understands that he is here to do something that's more important than himself and spreading right untruths, et cetera. That's not his, that's not the role I want him to to, to live. So thus, when he gets to be a chance to be an editor, hopefully. He won't set up systems like he won't utilize those systems 
it'll deconstruct those systems. So that is both optimistic and pessimistic. The pessimistic view of what you just described is that even if we can raise better humans for the next generation, it's going to take us a generation to get there until those new humans become editors and journalists and the people who create the incentives in whatever new systems arise. Is there a way to improve the current state other than to start when they're young and hope that they become good by the time they're older? Yeah, I believe so. If you believe in, um, I think he's, he's deceased now, but Dr. Erickson, who was the um, researcher behind Matt, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, was used to the 10,000 hours rule, right? That his idea was deliberate practice. If that is true, if it takes us 10,000 hours to become experts at something, so then it takes you 10,000 hours to become the editor of a newspaper who decides to have clickbait as a way to to generate income. Well, I guess we could then find a way to perhaps to get people to go 10,000 hours in the opposite direction. But it would still take it still would take some time. If 10,000 hours is is working 8 hours a week, 5 days a 5 days a week, it would take five and a half years. It would take us at least five and a half years to get the people who are doing what they're currently doing to perhaps stop doing what they're doing. Well, five and a half years is a reasonable turnaround time. It's, so it's better I'll take than, that. It's, it's better than a generation. <laughs> I yep. got you. You do spend, let's say, a lot of time talking about education, about proper child rearing. So I'm curious to know what are your ideas on that? I have small kids, so I'm really interested in the topic as well. What is the right way to raise better humans? Well, I, okay, so so right is subjective. So I can tell you what I thought was the right thing for, for me or what my wife and I thought was the right thing for us. So the, the very first thing I wanted to do is make sure I, I raised a child who was intellectually ambitious and a child who who understood critical thinking and perhaps was able to be raised using the Socratic method. Um, I think when I think about doing that, I think that gives a child an opportunity to be able to look and see beyond what everybody else is doing as a norm and be okay to, to think through that. The second thing I wanted to make sure is that I raised the child given the, the largeness of, of the planet, but also the very smallness of it. You mentioned having some of your closest friends living in other places, but you and I can have these kind of conversations. So the world is big, but it's small. I wanted to also make sure I, I raised a human who was globally and culturally competent, who could speak a number of different languages, and from the vantage point is of a person who lives in a country who's historically been seen as a, a marginalized citizen, I wanted my child to be able to see other people's humanity in the very way that we often ask people to see our humanity. And then lastly, I wanted to raise someone who was who was focused on uh, being humanitarian, that his largest goal in his life was that he would leave the planet better than it was when he arrived. And so for me, I think that those are ways so a, a template parents could use um, to raise children. That sounds like great goals at the level of values. How do we then translate those values at the level of developing competencies or actions? So if you're talking about the academic piece, that that's much easier. There's there's like you don't need me to 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 outline for you that there's a, a wealth of research that tells you the kinds of things to do to maximize a child's um, early childhood development and, and brain and cognitive development. Th that's easy to do. The um, global and cultural piece, I think that is that is coming upon the, the parents. If you want, as a tree, if you want great fruit, you have to make sure that the tree is a, a great tree. And, and oftentimes, in my experience, is that 
parents want their children to be something that they're not themselves. So I think the first thing is we all have to figure out how to be a better version of ourselves, like to take a real honest assessment. My wife and I did this exercise a few weeks ago, and I called it because um, you get married and it's called, you know, we make these vows for better or for worse. And I said, hey, I wonder if I took an assessment of myself, mind, body and spirit and ask myself, what are the worst things about me and turn those things into the better things about me? And what if I ask you about those same things about me and vice versa? I think that's the kind of thing we have to do consistently to analyze and evaluate ourselves. We're so quick to analyze and evaluate other people, but we don't take the time to do that. I think that's that's something we have to do as parents. Undoubtedly, we all do, and not just as parents, right? That would be useful in general. Absolutely. You mentioned there's a lot of research on early childhood education. Mm -hmm. Some of the research I've seen uh, suggests a very unfortunate thing to parents that we have limited influence and that if you add up some innate qualities like IQ and mm -hmm. then the effects of the peer group, especially when the child is, let's say, in teenage years, mm -hmm. then it's sometimes even hard to measure whether the parents had any impact at all. The other factors drown it out. Yeah, so I would say people are much smarter than me. So you can go back as far as Aristotle, who once said, bring me a child at seven and I'll show you the man. Um, the, the brain is formed mostly by, by age five and social behaviors and patterns are formed generally by the age of seven. And what I, what, what I hear when I hear parents say that, I hear parents who are not as actively engaged as they should have been in the formative years now saying, hey, I don't like what I see on the on the back end. Well, of course you don't like what you see on the back end because you didn't spend enough time and you didn't have a stringent enough plan in the beginning. And so what you're starting to see now is not something that's just happening because they're teenagers. It's something that's happening because of some, some missed opportunity that you have from zero to five or zero to seven. One of the things that you mentioned is that you want to develop in the child intellectual curiosity or mm -hmm. strive ambition. towards intellectual excellence. Mm -hmm. Ambition, right? That's ambition. a great word. Mm -hmm. So other than obviously you know, exploring topics together with the child, making sure that there's a lot of books in the home, are there any other strategies or tactics that you would recommend to develop that? So it depends on what age. The, so as I can tell you, if I if I if I had an infant, um, there are things I would do with with reading, as an example. It's in my own home. Uh, when we brought our son home from from the hospital, um, I played. Well, we don't have to do it now because we have much better tools. But we played language tapes in his crib. So while my friends were playing nursery rhymes and uh, uh, lullaby and goodnight, in my son's room, you would hear "Hola, come and stop being too." You'd hear. Good Morgan, you'd hear uh, you'd hear a various numbers of languages being played in this child's crib. Now, why did I do that? Because the brain science for, in 1994 indicated to me that if you did these things, you start to develop such that a child, when they had an opportunity to hear the language, would have started to form the speech patterns and it make learning the languages easier. That, that's something that I think any parent could do. We bought large books and showed. Um, big, big, huge picture books and your audience can't see it. But if you imagine uh, your shoulder width and from maybe from your chin to your to your navel, we would open up these books and they'd have 
um, let's say lions. And, and instead of just saying, this is a lion, we'd spell lion. We'd make the sound of a lion. We talk about the color of the lion's mane. We tell every fact that we could possibly tell about the lion until the child lost their attention and we changed the page to something else. Here's a fire engine. And what we found that within the first two months of our child's existence, he was speaking his first words. And by 10 and a half to 11 months, he was speaking the full sentences. And by the time he was two, he was tested for his vocabulary. It exceeded that of an eight-year-old. Now it was nothing special that I did. I found someone who had done some work with children with brain injuries. And I realized if you could do that for a child with a brain injury, I have a child who doesn't have a brain injury. Why am I not using the same things to help my child? I'm curious then if we go past intellectual curiosity, you mentioned a lot about raising a humanitarian, somebody who cares about humanity. So it mm -hmm. seems like there's a kind of development of values or virtues in the child. And sure. one of the things that strikes me when I look at all education programs basically everywhere is that the entire aspect is lacking. I don't see a discussion of virtues in the school system anywhere. Is there anything that we can do, not just as parents, but also as a society to try to inculcate virtue in children? A great question. You asked some, you asked some really great questions. Um, I don't know. So every institution has a mission and a vision statement. Most mission and vision statements, to your point, are about virtues. But rarely does anyone hold themselves accountable to the mission and vision statement. So one of the things I, I do when I get a chance to talk to organizations that I, I usually ask them that question, like I'll, there's an old McDonald's song for the Big Mac and you may or may not know it. And I may be dating myself, but it's to all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Now you can pick whatever commercial is the or theme today that everybody knows, but we all know it. And then I'd say to organizations, can we all recite your mission statement? Can we all recite your vision statement? And I've not met one yet that those organizations could do it. And so to me, that is the fundamental place to begin that if we are going to be a school and we're going to say we have a mission for something, then we should all be doing something on a regular basis to make sure that the mission comes to life in all of us. So I'd say that's the place to start to make sure that we, at least we know what it is that we're supposed to be representing because you can't do it if you don't know it. Well, we have to agree on it first. If we're talking about the public institution, then there's probably more than two or three competing visions. Sure, but each school, I'm saying each each school, like if your child's at a K, a K through six school, that school has a mission statement. And the question is, do, do the parents know what the mission statement is? Do the faculty and staff know what it is? Do the children know what it is? And then, and are we are we being are we talking about how to bring that mission statement to life in everything that we do? while we represent the school. And as a person who tends to be at least somewhat cynical, I'm also <laughs> worried that some companies can recite their mission statements, but if they're not binding, right. then they don't make any effect, right? Um, and that's a pet peeve of mine, right? We are a public benefit corporation because specifically when you're a C-Corp, you might have a mission and a vision statement, but the only thing that is really binding on you is maximizing shareholder value. Absolutely. So who cares if you're supposed to organize the world's information or connect the world to just use two companies that you probably know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? at, the, at the end of the day, you're supposed right. to deliver more value at the end of the quarter, right? And your earnings call. Everything else is just PR at that point. So we're trying to make the mission statement binding and therefore people don't just know it, but 
legally they're supposed to maximize it. I wonder to what extent we can bring that into other types of institutions and society and not just to companies. I think this country is an example. Again, I don't know about other countries. I've I've visited some other places, but I've never lived anywhere and been embedded in a society. But I think this this country is an example is missing something. I want to say we have 15, I think it's 15 U.S. secretaries, Treasury, Energy, Education, et cetera. But we don't have a, a secretary of citizenry. We don't have a, sec, a secretary of citizen, uh, um, civility. And it seems to me that that might be also a place to begin, that, that, that a nation that seems to be lost a great deal of time about how to treat one another could use some direction from somewhere about how we should treat one another. Well, the question is, if we create such a secretary, would the people who are currently in the nation agree <laughs> on what that secretary is supposed to maximize? Yeah, who knows? I don't know. I, I don't know. You can't tell you. You got you got a lot of questions, a lot of great questions. I don't know. I can only I can only hope so. And my grandmother used to say to me that um, words are important, but deeds are equally important. That the words are sort of the icing, and the deeds are the cake. And so. Um, Substantively, we have to all do better. And to your point, we have lots of great mission statements and people don't follow them. And of course, corporations, their their greatest mission is maximizing shareholder wealth, as, you, as you've articulated so well. Um, so to which case, then maybe we should ask corporations to stop with mission statements. That would be right. at least more honest. Right. In many cases, more, right? right. Stop pretending like you care for something other than maximizing shareholder wealth. Then, then maybe that's a good thing. Or a change to a different type of company, as some companies do, but it's still single digit, as far as I know, in the US. Where do we go from here? What would you emphasize besides, obviously, trying to behave better ourselves, trying to raise better little humans? What else can we do? Can we suggest to people to reorient their careers or the other parts of their lives to try to make things better for everyone? Yeah, I think one again, one of the, the big things for us to do is to take a look at, at, at ourselves. So where do we begin? We begin with self-evaluation. We get you know, who is it? I can't remember who said uh, uh, uh unexamined life is a is a life not worth living. That maybe that's where we begin. We begin with self-analysis. Now, how do we get people to do that? I know that's gonna be your next question. Like <laughs> I don't know how we get everybody to do self-analysis, but I don't know that we need everybody to do it as much as we need a few pe- a few more people to begin doing it. We, we do know there's the rule of 80-20, and we know that 80% of people are not going to do what you ask them to do. 20% of the people probably will, and those 20% of the people generally do the work of the, the, the 100%. So maybe we could just get 20% of the population to begin to do some more self-analysis. Simon Sinek had people convinced for a long time that we should all be asking about why. I, I've said to anyone who would listen that Simon was wrong. I don't know Simon Sinek, but if I had a chance to meet him, I would say that that's absolutely wrong. Why is the transitory question? It is not the best journalistic question to ask. The best question to ask is who do you want to be when your time on this planet is up? And maybe that's something we should begin asking people. Are you now that person? Because 155,000 people or so die each day. And so it is very possible that today could be your last day. And if it is, are you satisfied with the who you are currently? I want to dive into a slightly more, I would say, tactical question. Okay. Because you mentioned critical thinking, you mentioned values. One of my concerns is that even if you take a person with good values and good critical thinking abilities, 
and then you feed that person junk instead of real information, sure. their actions will end up being junk as well. Because ultimately, even a great computer, garbage in, garbage out, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we also not just create better humans, but we create better inputs to those humans? Or should we just assume that if everyone around us is good, the problem will fix itself? Well, I think you're an example of that. So do you, you're, you're a human who is inputting stuff and sharing, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. You're not sharing stuff that is bad for humanity. I'm assuming that based upon what you're telling me that you're not doing that. So that means if you are capable of doing that, guess what that means? That means other people are capable of doing it. So how did you come to that place where you're willing to only provide uh, information that is true and genuine? How did you get there? Because however you got there, you said you want to think more strategically. Well, great. Let's backward design you. How did you get there? And let's just create more, create more people like you. Right. Well, the, pr the problem is that those are two different questions. How did I get there and how do we create more people like me are somewhat different. I have limited influence on what other people are going through. Perhaps I have more reach than the average person. We have about a quarter million users, right? Sure. But still not as much reach as some of the bigger publications, some of the companies with larger audiences. Right. So we but can do so all the right things, but mm -hmm. still the majority around us will not have heard this message. Okay. But you still didn't answer my question. So now I get to press you. Okay. You, you, you didn't tell me how you got there. So you're talking about outcomes. I'm not talking about outcomes. You talked about systems and processes. I want to know how to create a system and a process that replicates what you are. Don't worry about the size. You're worrying about an outcome. As I tell my son all the time, there are things that are outside of your control. But the thing you can't control is your process for doing what you want to do and be who you want to be. I can't control if you, when he ran track, I can't control if he's going to win every race. Sometimes you're going to run against kids that are much bigger than you, kids that are faster than you. He left the country at 16 and moved to Brazil. There were kids who've been playing soccer in the Brazilian system since they were four or five years old. He's a kid from America. I can't control that. But what I can ask is, what kind of process can we put in place so that you can be the best version of yourself possible? And if someone else comes along one day who wants to do what you do, what can we tell them that they can do systematically so that they can be better? So you only have a small number of users compared to some of these other entities. But how did you get there? First of all, there, there's a couple of different things with the there in your question, okay. right? So the <laughs> okay. first question is, how did I get to the point where this is important to me? Right. And I guess a part of that is reading a lot of books, including by some of the dead Greek people that you and I discussed earlier. Right. The other one is being an information junkie in general, perhaps because my parents did invest in my intellectual ambitions, to, to borrow a term from you. Right. In fact, back in the Soviet Union, I think we had something like 3000 books and we couldn't even take them out with us when we moved out, when the Soviet Union was breaking apart, right? So we only brought 600 with us when we moved to Israel, right? But books <laughs> were always yeah. books were always a big thing, right? Um, in fact, I think they were the majority of the stuff we carried out by weight, if you consider it that way. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely a part of it. Personally, I was relatively successful, not very successful, but relatively successful in my previous career to the point where I could afford to take a risk and start working on something that doesn't pay right away, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. then on top of all of these baseline positions, I had this crisis of conscience after building perception systems, cameras, computer vision, that sort of thing for 15 years. 
where at some point I asked myself, does the world need more cameras? And the answer was obviously no. And I had to start working on something more useful. That's when I turned around. And that's why I ended up now having quarter million users and growing, right? It's that I decided to devote myself and eventually people joined me who wanted to devote themselves to creating better information in the world. That is a description of me. To what extent is this replicable? Absolutely. You just told me about your childhood. You told me about the books you read. You told me about the inputs in your life. And yes, in some ways, you were like the prodigal child who says, I went 15 years and I made all of this stuff that one day I had to, I had a crisis of conscience. Well, how do you think you had a crisis of conscience? Because you have a conscience. And when was your conscience developed? Long before the 15 years of you, because you went 15 years without a crisis at all. And then one day your conscience said, I've had enough. This is not who you're supposed to be. So it seems to me somewhere along in the formative years of your life, you were developed to be just who you are right now. And that's that's the point that I, that the larger point that I make, that if we find a way to help people be better from the beginning, yeah, we all gonna have moments we have, uh, uh, we veer off the path, but can we find our way back to the right path? And that's just one last question. And, you know, we <laughs> talked about me pressing you, you pressing me, but you said, it's, if it's we find great. a way, how? So I have to be hopeful, but more than being hopeful, I think we have to be a hope. And what does that mean to be a hope? It means to share with people some ways, some tools, techniques, and some strategies to be better versions of who we already are. We could certainly start at the very beginning. I've said to anyone who would listen, I think it's, it's unconscionable that we live in a nation where I can know more about how to put a car seat in, in than it is about what to do with a child. So there are so, so, and then to not realize what it is that I'm actually responsible for. I'm not responsible for a baby. I'm responsible for someone who has the potential to make the planet better or destroy the planet. That is a huge responsibility, but we, we don't have any guidance or any guidelines for that. So I feel like at the very beginning, that there's, there has to be some things implemented, such as like Lamaze. If you have a child and you take the Lamaze class and it teaches you how to bring your wife ice chips and rub her back in the right place and how to breathe. Well, that's great for childbirth. But we have no instruction on child rearing as it relates to creating future citizens, uh, owners of corporations, editors, et cetera. We have no process for that. So it feels to me like we need to have something in place so that we can all do a better job from the beginning. All right. Sounds perfect. And on that hopeful <laughs> note, since you like that word, I want to thank you so much for your time. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed having you on the show. It's one of the more optimistic episodes we've had. As you've noticed, <laughs> I tend to question things and poke at things to see if they still hold after I do that. Oh, I love it. I appreciate it. You've been a lot of fun. I've got to tell you, I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more in-depth discussion about news, media, and the information ecosystem.